I'm ARK Watson, and this is Catholic Reads Reviews. Hey readers, this is uh, ARK Watson with Catholic Reads, and today I'm joined by Eleanor borg Nilkelson, author of A Bloody Habit, a gothic uh, Victorian vampire hunting novel with jolly priests and very confused Englishmen. Um, so Miss, uh, Miss Eleanor, sorry, she asked me to call her Eleanor, um, is Director of Spiritual Education at St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in Charlottesville, Virginia. She has a master's in literature with a focus on anti-Catholicism in the Victorian period. Uh, as a homeschooler, so she teaches literature at Homeschool Connections. Uh, and she is a homeschooling mom herself and a mother of four. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So um, what got you started, or actually, for readers who aren't familiar with your book, can you give kind of a, a short introduction? Absolutely. So it's just the turn of the century. It's you know, 1901, and I have a skeptic named John Kemp. He's a lawyer, and he's traveling back from a business trip to Budapest. And he encounters two terrifying things on the train. The first is a Dominican friar, and the second is a vampire. So he doesn't believe in vampires and he certainly doesn't like Dominican friars. Uh, and he has to learn to negotiate the preternatural, but also figure out what to do with these wackadoo papists and their white robes who purportedly slay vampires uh, and do even more alarming things in their daily lives. So it's uh, built along the lines of Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was largely an inspiration point for me, but um, approaches it from a slightly different vantage point, let's say. <laughs> so, uh, what started you, uh, writing this book? What, what prompted you to begin the story of finding? It was sort of two things. One was a theory and the other was, uh, a nightmare. Uh, I've been working on Dracula for a very long time since I was a teenager, sort of was haunted by it when I read it, fascinated by it especially the, the appropriation of Catholic images and aesthetics and characters that happens in Victorian Gothic fiction, which is very anti-Catholic. Um, but so I had this theory that if you really wanted somebody who was good at killing vampires, you would need like a Dominican friar, someone who confects the Eucharist every day. The supernatural is not threatening. It's just not a big deal. They'd be lousy narrators, so they couldn't be the narrators, but they'd be really good at killing vampires. And then in 2009, in November 2009, I was uh, on a working retreat writing, staying with some Dominican nuns in Linden, Virginia, and a Dominican friar I know named Father Thomas Joseph White came to teach the nuns. And at dinner, he uh, said, you know, there's one thing you need to do when you're, when you're on retreat. And so I sat up, he's a genius, so I sat up taller and tried to look intelligent. And he said, well, you need to take a nap. <laughs> So the next day, I'm not a napper, but the next, I'm very obedient or tried to be. So the next day I thought, oh, I'll take a nap. So I stopped working. I was not working on vampires. And I lay down to sleep in the little guest room in the, in the monastery. Um, and I looked up and on the wall, they had an image of Veronica's veil, which, you know, looks like the disembodied floating head of Jesus on a gold background. And I thought, well, if Catholics are better at battling the preternatural, it's because we're weirder than the preternatural. And then I fell asleep and I had a nightmare about a lawyer on a train with a vampire and a Dominican friar. And then I woke up and wrote the first chapter of my novel. 
and spent seven years trying to finish it. <laughs> that uh, very much reminds me of the origin for um, Frankenstein. Yeah, a lot of it's actually. I was very pleased that it that it was begun out of a nightmare because a lot of gothic novels either began out of nightmares or the authors claim they did. But I actually had the nightmare. I felt totally validated. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Um, so I really found uh, John Kemp very amusing. He is um, very, he's, he's very stereotypically British um, and uh, Protestant, but in culture, but he's lost his faith. And I, I have to admit, through most of the book, I enjoyed laughing at his discomfort and um, at all the bad things that happened to him. I, I start to really like him towards the end. He does change, but um, but yeah, I don't know if you intended that or not. Um, I was, um, well, when I read your review of the book and you said it made you laugh, that made me so happy because I laughed a lot when I wrote it. And um, this is something, I mean, I've, I've read a lot. I've read a lot and I've read all the super significant uh things in the western literary canon especially and i've reached the point where i want to be laughing I, i've done all the significant work and now i want to read that the stuff that is uh amusing and entertaining and i'm very fond of john kemp as well but i also really enjoyed making him squirm he was he was perfect as a narrator actually and that was something i sort of deliberately started on but then he took over which was that um I needed somebody who was freaking out. So I created somebody who freaks out and then he became more and more sort of enfleshed. It was a very satisfying character to work on mm -hmm. and a fun narrative voice because you can get really overwrought, which I wouldn't do in most genres, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, uh, Something that did surprise me about the book, though, was that um, your vampires, they show up in the beginning uh, on your train scene. But after that, they don't show up for a good long while. Um, and uh, I mean, I, was that just something that felt like fit into the plot that way? Or were you trying to kind of, was there a deeper reason behind that? It sort of fit into the plot, but I also... Not being <laughs> by his daddy, um, being dragged off by his sisters. It's very hard to be a little boy with two older sisters. Oh, that is tough. Yeah. Hold on, just a second. Netflix, it's hard to it's hard to do anything without kids showing up. Yeah. Bear, could you get daddy? Oh, awesome! Good girl. Okay, so to answer your question, <laughs> now that <laughs> suffering, suffering Simon has been removed poor baby um it it fit into the plot but also it i had to give john kemp enough time that he was gonna believe in the vampires so i sort of had to draw back introduce them in a really creepy way but if if the if the vampires are really obvious they wouldn't succeed in infiltrating england which is what one thing i really wanted them to do i didn't want you know dracula shows up i'm sorry strategy's lousy he uh one at a time assaults people who know each other, mostly girls, 
Um, and when I teach uh, Dracula at, for Homeschool Connections, what our final assignment is to come up with one way that you would battle vampires and one way that you would improve Dracula's strategy. Hmm. And one of the things they always talk about is, well, you, you spread it out, attack a whole bunch of people, have a front story, have minions under you, build it up. I mean, but Dracula doesn't do any of that. He doesn't. One of the reasons I think he doesn't succeed i mean of course they don't want him to just succeed but it's just about strategy so i wanted to have a counterpoint between the super weird folklore of the vampire which is very present in the novel but to have a, a more advanced um socially sellable front to the vampire so that you know he can infiltrate society and john kemp can then relegate the nightmarish stuff like well that was just me being crazy instead of saying well no there is a sophistication in evil's assault so but it's not necessarily um something that i would admit i'm working very slowly because i'm having a baby but i'm working on a sort of a follow-on book with werewolves and i'm finding that the werewolves are all over the place at the very beginning so it's a different sort of balance, but it's also a very different sort of narrator. Mm -hmm. I don't have to convince her of anything. Yeah, I am. Um, I actually was a bit surprised by that, but it really did work because when the vampires did show up, I like I felt like John Kemp, and I was like, "What?" Because I had, I had kind of consigned myself. I was like, "Vampires are going to be a metaphor in this, and they're they're only going to show up in dreams and hallucinations. It's not going to actually be vampire vampire vampires." Um, but that actually made it more effective when they did show up. And and like you said, that slow build, like it wasn't, even though the vampires took a while to really show up, like there was still a lot of tension um, and a lot of mystery and um, all the gothic, you know, atmosphere that that, uh, that I love. So, yeah, it worked out. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. It was... Um... I also felt like I needed to lay a lot of groundwork for um, the society prepared for the onslaught, but the Victorian period was so rife for this kind of stuff. It's really a, it, it's, it's a really good environment to start playing around with this sort of stuff in. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, my other thing. so the other, oh, I was really, one thing I liked about your villain was um, he kind of, I'm not going to give away his whole plan, but he does, as part of his plan, get involved with the Freemasons. Mm -hmm. um, that was rather interesting. I'm, I'm sure that goes into your whole like anti-Catholicism theme that runs through the story and kind of commenting on on uh, that in, Vic in Victorian England. Yes, and def and also the popular popularization of spiritualism, and I mean. The Freemasons were huge. They still kind of are, um, which is a little scary. But they were huge and deeply uh, intertwined with the occult. And the Victorians, the stuff they dabbled in was, you don't mess around with that stuff. Um, and I should say that I tried to make sure that I didn't contradict any of the laws of demonology. But exorcism is the job of exorcists, and I can't read that stuff. So I sort of got as close as I needed to to make sure it was accurate and then crawled back to my Victorian novels because my um, my threshold for scary 
is really, really, really not very impressive. I'm, yeah. This is why I read the Victorians. Yeah, um, yeah um, I've often discovered myself writing horror. I'm the same. I don't like horror movies at all. But maybe that's that's a good thing when you're writing it because you know what's scary very well. Yeah. So you don't have to I think, Yeah, and I, I recently, I don't know why, but I went down the rabbit hole and I read a synopsis for a modern horror film. I couldn't sleep. And so I, it's like I, and I think it's partly because modern horror is so devoid of hope. I want there to, I want, I want the hope to sustain me through the horror. And I think that's part of the point of my novel is hope sustaining you in the face of horror and that goodness is obviously stronger than evil, greater than evil, and doesn't even require as much um, theatrical display as evil. But um, yeah. So, although I've, I've had a few people tell me that they lost sleep over my novel, I think it's it's not as scary as most scary things. Uh, you know, I know it's devoid of hope, but it just, it makes me laugh. And uh, Lovecraft uh, is something that I've actually really enjoyed. Um, it has all the creepiness and, and weirdness. Um, well, one of my favorite contemporary writers, and I should admit, I have to convince myself to read anything written past about 1930, because my sensibilities are so Victorian, but I love Tim Powers, and um, I can lose sleep over Tim Powers, but the weirdness and the, um, the, the Catholic understanding that undergirds his work without being ostentatious or preachy, um, I think most of his readers probably don't even know that he's a devout Catholic. He's a real icon um, who I came to about halfway through writing Bloody Habit. Um, and his imagination is so much weirder than mine ever could be. <laughs> nice. Um, so you're, the other character that really struck me in your book was, of course, the, the guy on the front cover, your um, Dominican vampire hunting priest. Um, and he's got a very long name, and I always forget it. Father Thomas Edmund uh, Gilroy. Gilroy, yeah. Is there a, a history behind that very long name? Is there something you're referencing there? or Nothing directly, but I think it was unconsciously um, uh, an homage to Father Thomas Joseph White, who, as I said, was a friend, one of my early readers, and uh, one of the sources of inspiration for starting the book. Um, this gets me in trouble because sometimes I get tripped up and I use his name. So I say Father Thomas Joseph, I mean, Father Thomas Edmund instead of, you know, so anyway. Um, and actually that picture, the original of that picture is hanging in my kitchen. It disorients people sometimes, but not usually. That's usually after they've passed through a couple of our rooms, which are full of the really weird Catholic art. I married a convert and I remember him saying, how do you think non-Catholics are going to feel? Don't you think they'll be overwhelmed when they walk in our house? And it had never occurred to me, but I started counting the number of, like I said, disembodied floating heads and creepy, garish, bloody pictures. And I went, oh, yeah. Well, interesting conversation starter. <laughs> so. Yeah. And uh, I, I know that 
probably everyone's made this um, reference, but I mean, you, you have a jolly kind of laid back priest in this super tense situation. Uh, I'm sure the Father Brown um, comparisons are inevitable. They are, but they were totally unexpected. Um, the first Father Brown comparison was the artist, Matthew Alderman, who drew the sketch for me. And his first draft, he sent it to me and I wrote back and said, oh, golly, great picture, but wrong hat, change the hat. This isn't Father Brown. And then when the book was published, I mean, everyone's talking about Father Brown. I love Chesterton. That was not at all deliberate, the Father Brown um, connection. But, and I can understand why people are saying it. I'm gonna have to reread to see if I see Father Brown because I read it, or when I was working on it and reading it, I was working so hard at first not to see specific Dominicans I knew and worked with. Um, but, yeah, I still, I'm still a little surprised, less surprised because I've heard it so many times, but by the Father Brown comparison, because I did not, I really didn't see that one coming. So it must have been, if there, if it was any sort of deliberation, it must have been totally subconscious. I mean, he's such an iconic character in Catholic culture and Catholic literature. I think, I think it, if you have a jolly priest, that's really like. With a round face, with a round face. Yeah. It's going to happen. And, and and part of it, too, is Father Brown doesn't insert himself in the stories very much. He, he is kind of a little bit of a blank slate, but that makes him easy to project on. Um, and also, I think it makes it easier to present goodness. Uh, in early iterations of the novel, I had to cut more and more of the Dominicans, but especially Father Thomas Edmund Gilroy out, just because if I gave him too much screen time, um, it became a Dominican in-joke. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it was, and he was less effective. Plus, vampire slaying isn't his primary job. It's sort of like a tertiary apostolate. He's, I mean, he's a priest, and then he's an historian, and then he's a vampire slayer. <laughs> well, how many times uh, is he called upon to do that? So, well, and it makes you wonder. Although I think that the activity of the preternatural must be pretty darn strong. Um, I'm counting on it actually because it's spurring other stories. I'm like, there he has to be busy. He has to be busy with this. Um, so you're uh, you you studied anti-Catholic um, anti-Catholicism in the Victorian period. Uh, how did like that definitely must have influenced this book? It really did. Well. It's it's all over Victorian literature. I always point out to my students that the novel arose during and especially after the Protestant Reformation. So it's largely influenced by Protestantism. So you don't really have anything like a Catholic novel until the very, very, very end of the 19th century. And it sort of opens the door to Chesterton and Tolkien and Waugh and C.S. Lewis, who of course wasn't Catholic, but that, that a different dynamic of presenting Christianity and in writing, especially Catholicism. Um, but the Victorians were fascinated by the lost language and characters and accessories of Catholicism. So when they wanted to show anything remotely supernatural, they sort of plug things in. You see it in Charlotte Bronte, you see it in Dickens, you see it um, obviously in all the high Gothic uh, works. 
because the the language was lost the only way you can convey it it i mean you see it today now if you go see a movie and they, they want it to be spiritually intense you have a catholic priest walk by right or a nun like oh spooky um so um I mentioned I'm having a baby in a couple of weeks. It's really hard to be a toddler when your mommy's about to have another baby. <laughs> Poor dude. Um, so no, it was it the. I also was always really annoyed when it was clearly all over novels, and my very advanced fellow graduate students would say things like, "Well, religion doesn't matter in this novel," and I go. You can't read Charlotte Bronte and not care about religion. You can't read the high decadence and not care about religion. It's just there's one Huismans against nature, and he um at the end his friend so he's a French decadent and he wrote a very weird novel about a decadent who thinks he is dying of syphilis and goes and decorates his house in the country. Weird novel. Well, at the end, a friend said to Huisman. Um, there are two choices left to you after writing this book. One is at the foot of the cross, and the other is at the end of the barrel of a gun. Quisman actually entered a monastery, I think. Anyway, so I brought this up in class going, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. And I was told, oh, that has nothing to do with the book. So it ends in Eucharistic imagery. I mean, this man is just fascinated by it. And then he was brought to the brink of conversion or reconversion or what? Anyway, no. No, wasn't wasn't anything to do with religion. Mm. This is one of the reasons that I stopped after my master's degree because <laughs> I got so frustrated fighting, and I'd rather fight from the outside. Yeah, you lasted longer. I, I consider doing that myself. Um, yeah. What was what was it like studying anti-Catholicism uh, in in Victorian literature in in today's academia? Um, well, there were, there was plenty of, of material to consider. And I had an, a few professors who, even though they weren't terribly interested in it, were supportive enough. And I had a few professors who I violently disagreed with, but they were good enough teachers that um, we'd have knockdown drag out fights. Um, but it, but it was good. I did though reach the point where I was so, um, exhausted i didn't want to I, I couldn't handle it anymore and the first i think it was the first thing i published when i graduated was a um not an expose but a sort of declaration of independence in dappled things um and it was called the dirty linen of literary studies so that was my that was my farewell to academia <laughs> mainstream academia um yeah sort of shaking the dust off my feet a little bit. And actually, Father Thomas Joseph White told me, he said, you know, most people, it takes them seven years to get over academia. And then he told me it was going to take me 10. I finished my master's in January of 2017. And I realized about a year ago that it had taken 10 years, but I was totally over it. What do you mean to, uh, it takes, what do you mean by over academia? Uh, the the emotional stress, if you're a person of faith and you're in academia, it can just be an extremely intense and sometimes toxic environment. So the mainstream can be really tough. I think you meant uh, 
reach a degree of emotional detachment where I could be laughing without bitterness and to even remember it with affection but no desire to return. Do you have any advice for any Catholic writers or Catholic literary lovers in academia? I would say uh, hold fast to healthy spiritual and personal practices and feed your mind as much as you can with not always the mainstream scholars. I know one huge lifeline for me was Joseph Pierce, who I wrote to as an undergraduate and was like, I really admire your work. I really would like to get some headway in this is my interest. You're becoming very important and why should you ever answer me? And he wrote me back personally, launched me in my first publishing opportunities and is a very, became a very, very dear friend and a huge support to me and a mentor when I was uh, losing my mind in the mainstream academia. So reach out to people who, if they can, will try and support you, but definitely rely on their work and be reassured that um, the scholarship outside the mainstream, there, it, there is room for what you want to do. There is room to feed your interest. Um, and you make a couple of references in this book. And I, I looked up a little bit and I could see that some of them were real, but I, could, I didn't know if all of them were. Um, I guess most notably uh, later, the character um, picks up a book by the uh, by by Father Gilroy, um, and he's reading it. And he the the book is kind of about um, vampire hunting and Catholicism. And you quote um, Pope Benedict the uh, Fourteenth and uh, someone named Devin Zadi. Um, to the section here. Um, the Order of Preachers, meaning the Dominicans, was founded in the 13th century to battle heresy and preach the gospel. We continue in our mission of preaching even unto the present day. Here we focus particularly on the role of Dominicans in addressing the problem of the vampire, also popularly known as the undead, a living body that gathers sustenance by drinking the blood of its victims. Um, and uh, yeah, and you quote like Aquinas and uh, and the Summa. Um, can you can you speak a little bit about um, how you drew from real world sources and where you filled in the gaps with uh, with? Well, the the, the um, Father Thomas Edmund Gilroy's book. I wrote it, obviously, um, yeah. but. Davanzati was a, uh, a major resource because in the 17th century, 15th, 17th century, there was a wave of vampire hysteria across Europe. And it was so severe that Pope Benedict XIV did, in a, in a document where he's talking about the bodies of saints, is a chapter which is about the proper treatment of bodies believed to be vampiric. And he was telling the peasants to stop digging up bodies and staking them. Because the Protestantized, increasingly secularized countries were going absolutely nothing up bodies and doing horrible things. And there were, you know, outbreaks of occult practices and the black mass. Anyways, it was a mess. So, but there is, there is a papal document 
quiz uh, chapter with the word vampire in the title. Um, and there were a lot of writers, Stefan Zotti, but there were also some screwball writers, not devout Catholic or, or theologians. Systematic catalogs of the preternatural and that sort of thing. So I modeled it on that. Um, the Aquinas quote is from the Summa. My brother found that and he thought it was hilarious and I thought it was hilarious. So I said, oh my gosh, the Summa is going in my book. Um, he, he is Aquinas. For, for the readers? I'm, so I'm sorry? Did you want me to read the Aquinas quote? Sure, I think. I think. Um, in Summa part three, question 71, article two. Hence, in accordance with this natural affection for his own flesh, a man has during life a certain solid solicitude for what will become of his body after death. He would grieve if he had a presentment that something untoward would happen to his body. Uh, yeah, I just thought that, that word untoward. <laughs> it almost sounds British, um, which of course Aquinas wasn't. But so that I was able to draw. Um, but I mean, I think, as I said, the same with the Victorian period, this was just perfect. I mean, you could just dump the um, the establishment of this, uh, how I, I don't even remember the terms I used, but um, this apostolate for the Dominicans. Because, um, you know, the Albigensians are gone, so why not kill vampires? Uh, and actually, a sort of post hoc, I think it fits the Dominicans well, if you think of them as battling um, Gnosticism. This is a vampire's a neo Gnostic. You know, he's the pitting of the physical and the spiritual against each other. There's Manichaeism in here. I mean, it's just such a mess that it makes sense that the agents of anti truth would be battled by uh, the champions of truth. Because Veritas is one of the mottos of the Dominican order. Um, and another thing I liked about your book was that uh, I felt like someone who isn't Catholic could pick this up and, and enjoy it. And I was wondering if you had gotten any feedback from non-Catholic readers or what you kind of hope that they get from it. I haven't directly, but I'm really hoping, I've mentioned it to a lot of people, especially um, Catholic friends who are reading it and who mentioned that, you know, while I have this uh, teenage niece or nephew and loves reading this stuff, but not Catholic. So this is perfect. Why wouldn't you? I mean, the the fantasy and faith crowd is a huge point for um, literary communication. So I would really love to have non-Catholics read it, um, not just because they wouldn't see Father Brown, and I'm curious to see what they would see. Um, but I think that it's such a fun and exciting world that I don't know. I, I, I would love that feedback. So Christmas gifts for non-Catholics, um, mostly because I selfishly want to know what they think of it. To see, I worked very hard not to overplay my hand. It's one of the dangers as a Catholic novelist, I think. You can so overplay and uh, get into proselytism. Uh, yeah. This is why many novels I have of my of my life will never see the light of day, and that's a mercy. They were just preachy. They're bad. They're awful. So I worked very hard in this one. I didn't want it to be um, caught up in that, even though it's talking about things like life and death and salvation and damnation. I didn't want it to be 
uh, incapable of crossing the Catholic barricade, as it were. Um, well, I mean, just for me, I, I, I'm a convert and um, reading it with the being a convert, it feels like you have one of those 80s uh, 3D glasses on. You can see things from two perspectives. How um, I, I don't think it was very preachy. I think that, uh, you know, anyone, any secular reader would pick this up and enjoy it the, for the same reason that secular and Protestant Victorian readers enjoyed the Gothic and enjoyed um, Catholic symbolism, even though they didn't agree with it. And uh, I think it was a good choice that, you know, your main character, he doesn't convert. He comes to respect Catholicism and there's a yeah. sort of understanding um, kind of uh, appreciation there. But um, I didn't find it very preachy at all. Yeah, well, and I, I think that in the end, my point wasn't to convert anybody, even my characters, if that makes sense. My 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 goal was to kill vampires. <laughs> But have fun doing it. Exactly. Yeah. So what um, what do you think uh, is, what do you think is the next step for Catholic literature? I think that as a general movement, and I, th I think there's a lot of emphasis there and there are a lot of good things happening among Catholic writers, I think the slow and steady growth that I see happening is, is partly, um, it, it's, I, I would say it's the maturation of a movement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that means getting past the temptation to proselytism, but also getting past the, the sort of hyper anxiety that I know I at various times have had to work through uh, about the Catholic literary heritage. I mean, we don't just want to be rewriting J.R.R. Tolkien knockoffs or Flannery O'Connor knockoffs or <laughs> whoever else knockoffs. And I think that um, I see really exciting things happening. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons that Ignatius Press is publishing novels. I mean, wow, that's so cool. Um, but things like with Dappled Things, which is such an awesome periodical, and it was one of the first places that I found the opportunity to be published. Um, so that high literary standards and devout faith can work together to articulate something beautiful about the human condition, something uniquely beautiful about the human condition. Um, without getting bogged down in preachiness, or like I said, writing knockoffs of the greats. Um, I think I think it's that's the next step and I think it's happening. I think it's happening around us. It's really it's an exciting time to be writing as a Catholic. Um, but it's uh, especially given the fact that the mainstream has so lost the language of faith entirely that there's a new degree of receptivity across the board, I think, because people hunger for it. They want that's why the faith and fantasy crowd is is would be open, I think, to something like a bloody habit. Um, they want books with this in it, even if I mean that, that's why Maria Doria Russell, yeah, mm -hmm. here at the Sparrow, highly popular novel, really screwy um, ideas about uh, Catholic mor morality, sexual morality, but um, 
why did it do so well? Why didn't it horrify and, you know, why did Bram Stoker's Dracula do so well? Um, because there's a hunger. There's a hunger for a lost language. So I think it's an exciting time and we have a lot of potential. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that The Sparrow, um, a lot of the strength of that novel comes from its very Jewish uh, inspiration mm -hmm. and ideas yeah. about suffering. Uh, yeah. Very religious themes uh, and uh, it just comes at it from a different, a different religious viewpoint. And it, and it also, and this is one of the beauties, I mean, I, like I said, I read Victorian literature, it's almost entirely either anti-Catholic or at best um, ambivalent to Catholicism. So that doesn't mean that there isn't an expression of truth and beauty that we can, you know, really learn from and be drawn to and uh, feel your soul expand by a little bit. So, um, yeah, I think... I, there, there's, there is a lot to be done, and there's a lot that is being done right now in literary circles, including the Catholic ones. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so, what's, uh, what's next for, for you? What are you working on now? Well, very next is I'm having a baby in about two weeks. Oh. Um, but, <laughs> and then I can continue working. Maybe not immediately. Then, maybe like a little bit after that. I'm working on a novel with Father Thomas Edmund might make an appearance because everybody was so pleased with him that I feel like I could get away with bringing him back. But it's about werewolves and it's about five years after Bloody Habit. And the werewolves are uh, loose. They're supposed to be convalescing under the watch of the Franciscans. And one of them relapses and is on the run. And so we're going to chase it down. It's exciting. Is it set in Victorian England as well or in a different yeah. part of the world? It's about 1906. And I started in the middle of the Atlantic and I've been all over Europe. It's my own little werewolf. Yep, there's one little one. Well, that's really exciting. Do you know uh, when that might be out? Well, I've been working at a pretty rapid pace on it, but I have to admit the end of pregnancy has slowed me down a little bit. So I would hope to finish it within a year or two. And just about when people start to forget about Bloody Habit, I'll just have to remind them of it. Yeah. Well, I, I'll just have to keep an eye out for it then. I'll, I'll be looking forward to it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for so much for uh, joining joining me and um, you know, thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you want to read uh, Eleanor's book, you can uh, pop over to whatever online store of your choice and get it. Uh, if you're on a budget and you can't afford to buy a full price book right now, you can always subscribe to our newsletter and we send out email once a week with one of our books from a database marked down 50% off to free. So y'all keep reading and keep the faith. See you all next. God bless.